Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Steve Macias and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Welcome to the Out of the Question podcast. I am your host, Andrea Schwartz, joined by Steve Macias. Hey there, Steve. How you doing? Hi there, Andrea. I am doing well. Are you glad it's Friday? I am glad. Although Sunday is just a day away. That's true. That's true. Well, today is January 11th, 2019, and we're going to explore the question, does it matter what I think? And the question behind the question is, what is the place of opinion in the life of a Christian? So, Steve, I'm going to pass the baton to you to get us started. Well, I think it's an important topic for us to talk about opinion because we live in an era and time of self-proclaimed prophets, whether they're on Twitter or Facebook. It seems that anybody can just share their opinion uh, at the click of a mouse. And we have to wonder if these opinions are changing how we understand uh, truth and its relativity. But it's also a time of great censorship, you know, whether it's Facebook or, or Google. What your opinion is being monitored and regulated by even our government. Now, here is not as bad as some other places, but I think it's important to talk about uh, opinion and the value of opinion and the role of opinion in the Christian life. All right, so when we talk about opinion, typically it's this is what I think. But don't you think that it's appropriate, now I'm asking you for an opinion, (laughs) (laughs) is it not appropriate before we state an opinion, if we're going to be faithful to man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, should we not first consult what God has to say on a subject before we begin to render an opinion. Oh, certainly. And part of the myth that comes into here is something I hear often in church discussions. There's this idea of of neutrality, that somehow there are some topics where the scripture isn't authoritative, and so far we have a, a middle ground or a adiaphora. You hear that a lot in Christian circles, that God doesn't care about what color socks you wear, so therefore, how many children you have is really irrelevant to this discussion. You've seen opinion go that way, I'm sure? Oh, definitely. As a matter of fact, I used to go through that with my children. You know, are you trying to say that God has a preference over red or blue? And my response to them used to be, I don't know if God has a preference between red or blue, but there should be a consideration made of where you're going And if you're going to go into a city, for example, if you walk in wearing the color blue and that could get you killed, maybe you wouldn't want to wear the color blue there. So as long as some aspect of God's law isn't being violated, then we move into the area of liberty because liberty is the ability to live under God's law. And if God hasn't specified red or blue in an area, as long as you're taking all things into consideration, then you can proceed. Right. And what's very interesting is the opposite of that liberty uh, and 
when people put forth the idea of opinion as being ultimate, they end up creating a society of totalitarianism, right? The, there's a famous adage that goes something like, when you ignore the Ten Commandments, you don't get uh, less commandments, you get millions and millions of commandments. I think I'm misquoting that a little bit, but the same principle applies. When we move away from the authority of God's opinion or God's standard, the result is not a vacuum of opinion where the best ideas win. It's this totalitarianism of everybody's opinion being equal. And the result in every case is we get enslaved to uh, man-based totalitarian opinion regimes. I think it's Rush Dooney who stated that if you were going to enumerate all the laws of the Bible, you could look at them somewhere between 613 and 620, depending on whether you combine some. And then I remember him making the comparison that the federal government is producing thousands of laws every year that maybe more than thousands, maybe we're in the tens of thousands and they're not known by people. So at any given point, you could be in violation of one of those laws yet within the Bible, within the 66 books, we have God's law laid out. So we can know them. 600 is a lot or 600 plus is a lot, but it's certainly a lot less than hundreds of thousands. Yeah. Well, and you know, not to get too uh, philosophical here, but what we say about opinion really determines what our religion is like. So in these old ancient philosophies, even the ones that exist even today, there's this idea that from chaos, man has put things into order. Whether you're talking about an old Greek religion, you go from chaos, and then man, whether he's a philosopher king, or man, whether he's uh, using his special opinion, is able to piece together this chaos into something created in his image. And we see the same thing happen with all modern forms of government, whether it's democracy or communism. They take what they consider chaos or inequality, or and they try to piece it together uh, using their opinion. And the result is that in piecing together that chaos, they have taken the place of the divine, and they have formed a government or a society or a culture in their own image. But the, the result of these opinion-forming religions is that salvation or identity or health or goodness is always defined by those opinions. And so we see today, uh, when we look at transgenderism or homosexuality and all of these opinions that have bubbled up over the Christian ethos for the last 50 years, that now holding opinions in contradiction to homosexuality or in contradiction to their modern transgenderism has now been a crime against the divine you know, creator of this chaos into society. Now we have crimes against the opinion or the thoughts of the state. Right, so what's been replaced is man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the statists. And so 20 years ago, certain speech was allowed, but in 2019, now even if you intimate that you have a disapproval then you're not welcome and adjectives like hateful and deplorable are placed on you. No, that's right. And uh, <laughs> we have to think about what 
opinions we hold to be private. Uh, there was a new poll that came out this past week, uh, not a poll, a new, some new study, and it's similar to what studies have shown in Western Europe that the replacement rate, you know, the number of children that people are having in the United States is continuing to decrease, right? I think it's now established that the American replacement rate across the continent is 1.7. That's what everybody's, how many children on average Americans are having. Now, I think that uh, the demographers have said that we need to have like two and a half children to keep up with death and mortality and disease and sickness. So with 1.7, we're actually going to have a crisis in the future of not having enough young people to care for our old. The system that was created to collect social pensions is going to collapse because there's not enough people paying into it. The pyramid will crumble. Now, I know some people have been saying this for, for decades, but What's important to take from all of that is that private opinions, right? Private thoughts about how many children I should have, private thoughts about what type of contraception I should use, private thoughts about what the family ought to be have public consequences. What we believe becomes our reality because that's what we act to. It's true in public policy, things like that, but it's also true in our spiritual lives. I don't know if you want to add anything to there on the, the public part, but on the private part, my uh, good friend and pastor in Sacramento, uh, John Stuss, used to say that all sins, all sins begin in our fantasy. So our opinions about God's law, our opinions about what is right, our opinions about what we ought to be doing begin with our fantasy, our thoughts. So when we talk about opinion, all of our sins are born from those ideas of what we think is right and wrong. You earlier differentiated between a Christian world and life view and other religions, but you have many people who will argue, and I'll dare say insult and scream at each other because they have contrary opinions as to what the word of God says, and in each case, they're sure they're right. How do we maneuver through identifying what God says and merely our opinion about what God says? Well, I think what's interesting is that Christians, we have a unique tradition. So we have 2,000 years of folks arguing about opinion. Now, in my particular tradition as, a, as an Anglican, we have creeds and councils and theologians beyond our ability to read who have given us uh, a tradition of the church. And so there are certain things that Christians have, have beaten each other up about over and over again and come to a, a consensus. And there's something to be said, obviously, that the scriptures are our ultimate authority and we can't say anything to contradict it. But when the church has held an idea for 19 centuries, for 20 centuries, that should hold some weight in the idea of opinion. When the church has held something since the very beginning, you know, for example, we often hear uh, modern folks talk about, uh, well, birth control is a modern discussion because artificial birth control has only been available for, you know, less than 100 years. Or they'll say gender roles is a modern discussion because the culture of St. Paul's was so different than ours. But what we fail to realize is that the scriptures have been read, 
the same scriptures have been read by different cultures, by different continents, in different centuries. And somehow, Calvin in Geneva and St. Augustine in the Hippo came to the same conclusions on a great number of things. Um, so there are, I think there's first, we have to acknowledge that the scriptures speak plainly to the people, that there are, there are possible common ground uh, interpretations, and that it's possible for us to weed out of opinion into truth, that there is a certainty and objectivity to what the scriptures demand of each man and woman. All right, so the Bible is God talking to us, and then as we receive that and pray, the Holy Spirit guides us to have our life conform with the Word of God. Certainly. Okay, so I guess then what has to be argued at this point is what's the standard by which we're going to argue? And I don't mean argue like fight, just have it be meaningless, but I mean argue where I share my point of view and you share your point of view. The common ground, if it's not going to be the word of God, then you're not really going to have much advancement in terms of a better understanding and a better practice. Right, and so you have to have first an objective source of authority. You have to have first agree together that that there is something by which things can be uh, held against. What's, what does Rushdie say in that early book? Uh, by what standard, right? <laughs> so there has to be a standard by which all philosophies and opinions have to be compared against. And philosophies that don't measure up against to that standard, I think there's even a picture of this on that book. I'm imagining Rush Dooney's By the Standard has a blue cover, and it has a picture of the, uh, what is that called? The, the little hook that you're used to measure or not the wall is straight. It's like a... Oh, a plumb line. A plumb line. That's right. And the plumb line, Rush Dooney would explain, had a, had a hook at the very bottom, and the architect would, after they built the wall up so many feet high, would hold the plumb line against the wall, and if the wall was straight, the wall would stay standing. But if the wall was off at all, and the plumb line would show that this wall was deviating, that they'd take the hook on the bottom of the plumb line, attach it to the bottom of the wall, and the whole wall would be pulled down. And so that's what should happen to all autonomous uh, human opinions. Anything that can't be objectively measured and weighed against the word of God, you've got to take the hook to the very bottom of the wall and tear the whole thing out. Because you can't build a an idea or a theology off of an opinion that doesn't measure up to God's word. And I think this is where you can make some people who profess to be Christians extremely uncomfortable. And since I have the benefit of teaching classes and we do it online. So in many cases we have video face to face and I don't know why it's so much more obvious to me when we're in that kind of setting rather than we're in the same room. To me, it just seems to come across so much more when you've hit a chord with certain people. For example, I have a class with some young people, and the question comes up, how do you know that you're a believer? You get this look on their face like, I'm not sure. Sometimes I wonder. And I said, well, the scripture says, for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they're the children of God. Because the question we had raised was, can everybody call God Father? And they started off by saying, oh, yes, absolutely. And I said, well, not exactly, because we're adopted into God's family. Well, 
then came, well, what about the person, or I know my uncle such and such, and we want to make excuses and say, well, yeah, I know the Bible says that, but get real, you know, and then you're going to be telling all sorts of people that they're not really Christians. And I think we missed the point that I'm not sure God wants us to have opinions about doctrine. I think God wants us to be faithful and obedient to doctrine. I'm not sure how much my opinion means to God. No, that's right. Well, I remember, and this is a a strange anecdote, but when I first became a Reformed Christian, and uh, we had Facebook accounts, and you can go on your Facebook and you can choose what type of uh, religious background you have. You can even specify denominations. And there was this, this thing you could do amongst other Reformed people on Facebook and you could go and create a post of all the different distinctives that you had opinions on, you know, uh, soteriology or what you felt on the ecclesiology, what you felt about lapsarianism, what you felt about, you know, all these different pet issues. And you would go all the way down to really minute concepts like, uh, do you believe that when Abraham and Melchizedek have a feast together, is Melchizedek really uh, a man and king of Salem, or is he a a theophany of God? And people would build camps around whether or not they agreed on this one side or the other side. They built these little fortresses of their own opinions. And I think that this has really gotten into one of the main problems with modern Christianity, is that it's a religion that has been interbred with modern romanticism. You know, the idea of emotional attachment to ideas rather than objectively reading them for what they are. You know, we're more concerned about how a doctrine or a, a, a theological idea makes us feel or makes us, how it makes us be per- perceived than the truth of it. And we're more concerned about whether or not my particular theological idea puts me in a camp with people I respect and trust or people who I want to like me or people who make me feel good than whether or not that is actually in line with the scripture. I'm sure you've been tempted, uh, as I have, to maybe change one of your, politic- your, one of your theological ideas because perhaps one of your heroes disagreed with you, right? That's us allowing the emotionalism of romantic theology rather than going back to the objective standard of the scripture is more important than my opinion or even my hero's opinion. And then there's another facet to it, since many of us grew up in a culture that had embraced humanism and in some cases blended humanism into being a good Christian and until we had the benefit of really understanding biblical law, being able to say, wait a minute, yeah, I know that's what this party thinks or I know that everybody in my family thinks this, but I don't think that's consistent with God's word, that you suddenly have a situation where people say, well, if you hold to that, you're going to offend me because I've built parts of my life on that. A great example would be for anybody who isn't familiar with it. In vitro fertilization is often used when couples can't conceive. And this, I know many Christians who have gone through this and the process is that with certain kinds of uh, hormonal stimulation, a woman will produce more than the typical one egg per month that she would do. And so then there are multiple fertilizations, and then it's determined that only 
those that are viable or most doctors don't wish to put more than two back in because that might mean that, you know, you have triplets or quadruplets and they don't consider it safe. They don't consider that an abortion takes place. What they do is they reduce, that's the term, the number of embryos. And the reason the doctor will say it's not an abortion because abortion ends pregnancies and the pregnancy is still there. So I've had this discussion and there's some looks on people's faces that tell me that maybe they proceeded with this process. Now, there are many variations where you don't necessarily have to be in sin, but if we don't examine it from a biblical point of view, we want to strive for, at least from my perspective, is that we look at every area of our life and thought and say, how does this measure up with what God says? And that's how we keep up a orthodox view of things as technology advances. Right. And I'm sure you've, you've met all kinds of that area, the medical areas, you meet all kinds of people who have very strong opinions because they are very emotionally tied to them. You know, even discussions about, uh, government involved in healthcare, things like uh, organ donation. People who have been through traumatic or emotional experiences are somehow unable to separate uh, their personal experience from truth. And that's because most, most of what modern Christianity has become is an experiential religion. It's They've taken the experience of Christianity to be the ultimate form of truth. You know, I really felt moved by that sermon, or I uh, was really in the spirit during worship. They have these emotional attachments to determine whether or not uh, Christianity is true or if their service was genuine. And you hear that word a lot, too. Uh, there's this this trend of being, quote, real. Have you heard this amongst people who have escaped legalism for what they call, you know, quote, real life? And it's it's very sad that to move from objectivity to subjectivity, to bow from God's law to a law unto ourselves is considered real by our culture. When the most real thing is what God has created and ordained and instituted and everything else is, you know, fake. So you brought up an interesting point, objective and subjective. The law of God and the gospel are objective truths. I don't have to agree that, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity to make it true. So that's not a subjective thing for me. But certainly my life experience and that which leads up to my conversion and then various aspects of my sanctification, of course I receive those subjectively because they happen to me. But that doesn't mean my subjective experience supersedes the objective truth of Scripture. Right. And I would say that it actually works the opposite direction. And that's kind of how Calvin and Augustine have organized our, uh, our system, right? So think about the, the Calvinist interpretation of, of baptism. Now, in our modern American culture, we think of baptism as something uh, that is a decision we make, we confess, we're submerged in the water. That's the modern American picture of baptism. It's something where uh, of a, a rite of passage where I claimed my religion upon me. 
But the way that the Calvin and the, the church fathers understood it was that baptism was an objective reality going the other direction. Here is a work, a sacrament, a ordinance, whatever you'd like to call it, instituted by God, where God comes from outside of our world and changes our identity in this world. And that from that point on, it's not so much a subjective experience, but we are held to a standard uh, of objective reality. It's very similar to how we are to understand marriage. If we approached marriage subjectively, you know, how I feel today, uh, <laughs> how my spouse is treating me today, and we approached our vows in our marriage in that subjective nature, there would be no marriage left standing. We have to approach these covenantal identities objectively. We have to think uh, of the reality that God has held us to uh, our vows at marriage, held us to our commitment, held us to something we said and will not allow us to escape those things. And so when you talk about religious experiences being subjective, I mean, sure, they're subjective in the sense that they happen uniquely in one way to us. You know, I was converted at 16. That's not true for you. It's a subjective thing. I was converted at a concert. It's subjectively true for me. But the thing that I encountered is objectively the same for everybody because it's not my opinion (laughs) that determined who that God who got a hold of me was. It was the scripture who defines him. And so no matter how I subjectively came to experience or encounter that God, my response, my responsibility, my covenantal obligation to that God is not a matter of opinion, but of what does God require of me? And too many people are afraid to say, thus saith the Lord, in discussions about the various issues you brought up. But let's take since you used the example of marriage. Marriage is much more than your relationship to your wife and my relationship to my husband and everybody else's particular relation with their spouse. It's a picture of Christ and his church. Thus, you can't have people of the same sex marrying because there are the he's and the she's that are built into the scriptural narrative. And so the simple and most precise answer as to why that's not marriage is because it's not consistent with scripture. And I think a lot of Christians think, well, I've got to get a better answer than that because somebody will say, well, I just don't happen to believe the Bible. And, And that goes back to the funny example, which I'm sure you've heard, Somebody comes up and pulls a gun on you and says, give me all your money. And you say, well, I don't believe, believe in guns. guns. And he, yes. and he goes, okay, I'm sorry. I'll put it back. Let's see. I'll have to find another way to get all your money. He doesn't <laughs> care what you believe. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And it also goes to, you know, back on marriage, the idea of, of the goal of that relationship or the, the value of that relationship. The modern homosexual messaging is love is love or, you know, who are you to say this isn't love? And they have defined the relationship in terms of the result or the terms of the emotion or the terms of the subjective feelings. And so Christians can also fall in that same trap. You know, how many middle-aged folks who have been through what we call the dip, you know, the difficult parts of a relationship, you know, they, they start to lose sight of the objective 
you know, this is a picture for church. This is a picture for my children. This is a picture for the world. And they get caught up in the subjective parts of, well, you know, I'm really sick of cleaning up his dirty socks and I never got to go tour Europe. You know, the subjective warm fuzzy has disappeared. And uh, instead of clinging to the objective, they allow the, the world's subjective opinion to turn them into something else, to turn their marriage into something of the world rather than something divinely gifted to them from God. Right. And since most of those people who you describe stood before a minister or someone who was officiating and their families and friends and vowed they would stick together till death parted them, somehow or other, as soon as we say, yeah, but to that and not have a scriptural basis on why this union has to be dissolved, because there are some unions that if God's law was being applied in terms of capital offenses, someone would have been divorced by death if (laughs) her husband committed a capital crime and then was executed. So she would be divorced by death, and she'd be free to remarry. But we've taken vows and then decided that two, three, ten, sometimes forty years into it, I don't want to do it anymore. And we somehow think, I read this quote today from Rush Dooney, if we run away from today, it'll catch up with us tomorrow. So it's not like it's going to go away. Whatever you're running from, you're going to go meet it again. Right. And and whatever the foundation you build on, is, we're going to come crumbling back too. Uh, but yeah, it is an issue. And part of it is a lot of our our promises as an evangelical culture, as a, as a reform culture, as an American Christian culture, a lot of our promises are based on results rather than thus saith the Lord, as you said. You know, we, we sometimes teach, you know, marriage is good and it's good for you and it's going to be the best result for you. And implicitly in there, we teach do this because it will make you happy. Do this because you will enjoy it. But if we don't have the basic foundation of this is what God expects all the time, obedience to God is more important than everything else, then we end up creating just a parallel false idol that the world has. You know, we have to build all of our opinions, uh, not around man, but around God's standard. And I happen to, uh, to remember a quote about this, this idea of seeking solutions or relationships to find happiness. There's one from, from uh, C.S. Lewis. He talks about how many people think about Christian solutions as the ones that might make them more happy. Uh, we, we follow the right rules for courtship or we follow the right rules for marriage. We follow the right rules for church membership. And then somehow that in those organizations and relationships that things will be rosy or perfect because we followed the the rules. Uh, but the reality is because we're sinners, it's not going to work out that way. But Lewis says something like this. I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. <laughs> if you want a religion to make you feel really, really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. Because even though we're uncomfortable with thus saith the Lord, there's a reason <laughs> we feel that way, because we will always be inadequate and always be reforming and transforming and submitting 
and breaking and recommitting ourselves to what God's perfect standard is. Now, as educators, you're an educator, I'm an educator. It's really important that we teach truth and let our students or those who are learning from us know that this isn't our truth, that you can question us as educators, but you only question the scripture so that you understand it better. Otherwise, you're basically saying, God, I won't have you to rule over me because I don't agree with what you said. That's right. Do you think that um, it's important that we try to stay? I mean, some people say, I think. Other people say, I believe. You can get really sort of neurotic and say, I can't say that because am I giving my opinion? What's the difference from your point of view between knowledge and wisdom in this area. Right. Well, I think, and I believe, really represent two distinct philosophical ideas in our modern sense, right? Uh, There are Christians who every week confess the creed, Nicene Creed, which begins with, I believe, right? But then there is also this really dominant worldview out there, the Cartesian worldview that begins with, I think, right? So there's, there really is a, a division there between I believe and I think, and it begins with where the source of authority is. Now, a lot of, a lot of Christians approach the scriptures with I think as well. Now, those of us who are familiar with Cartesian thought know that uh, Rene Descartes was talking about uh, using our senses, our intellect, our rationality, our ability to observe the world, and then that was the source of you know, meaning or, or wisdom. So for, for Rene Descartes, you would observe some scientific reality, and if you could uh, rationalize it based on your you know, skills to see and to, to decipher it, then you could determine that was true. Now, I believe works very differently, and you can trace I believe you know, back from from Calvin to St. Anselm, you know, the, to back to St. Augustine, where they talk about the idea of, I believe that I might understand, where there's this idea that we have to presume and presuppose the existence and the superiority of a divine knowledge and wisdom before we can make sense or rationality of anything. So there really is a, a direct contradiction to I think and I believe. If you begin with I think and make yourself the, the arbiter or the judge of wisdom, you're at odds with I believe, where you have to first assume that there is a greater standard of wisdom that you're comparing your actions against. So when we're dealing with children, there are a set of truths that they need to be told this is true. And we don't wait for them to decide any more than we wait for the two-year-old to decide when his bedtime is or whether or not he's going to walk outside, you know, without clothes on. There are certain things that we say, this is what you should do. And so the whole idea that people are moving into today is that if somebody feels that his sexual identification doesn't match with his biology we should give a whole lot of credence to how he feels. The greatest service we can do to people is to tell them that that's not true 
and they may call us haters, but we realize that if you don't tell someone the truth, that's the real evidence that you hate them. Right. And going back to, to talking about kids, we actually, um, <clears throat> we got compared this week, our Christian school here was compared to a, a Waldorf school. Tell our listeners what it is. The Waldorf school here in our area, Waldorf of the Peninsula, is a very progressive view of education where the children learn not by teacher-led instruction, but by you know, self-experience. They, they actually pride themselves in saying that the students, through interaction and dancing and singing and hand motions, they self-teach themselves, that there's something like innately good about children and that their education model brings out that goodness to the children. But they also don't use technology. They don't use uh, computers or, or iPads or anything like that. So a lot of the very wealthy and the very uh, tech-savvy uh, CEOs in this area in Silicon Valley send their kids to these schools. And they spend you know, upwards of $30,000 a year to have their kids do self-exploration exercises from the age of like 3 to 15 or something like that. And what is interesting is how contradictory their worldview is because they, they say that there's something naturally self-revelatory, but in this, what you're talking about with, with transgenderism, you know, what's a child supposed to discover about themselves naturally in regard to their sexual orientation? Well, there's certain biological truths that are self-revelatory, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And yet the, the very, folks who will tell you that they're led by their natural surroundings, the things that naturally occur are acting so contrary to what is naturally revealed to them. I think this is what St. Paul talks about when he says that God is revealed in nature uh, himself. And so, so many who worship our bodies, natural ways and processes have to act contradictory to their own stated opinions and beliefs to support some of the outlandish things they support, like gay marriage and transgenderism that are so just unnatural. Exactly. And so there's the contradiction. And if you're going to help someone or even pray for those people who might not want to hear from you, it should be along the lines of trusting that the sovereign God is going to reveal to his elect that which is true. And so uh, instead of having the I think wars, you know, which is probably personified best with if you ever listen to call in radio, everybody and his brother has an opinion. And like they say, opinions are like belly buttons. Everyone has one that we need to kind of shift away from. It really doesn't matter what I think. It matters what I believe in terms of that, which is true. Right. And Unfortunately, I think that that many of us follow the polls, right? So we we put our finger up and we think about where our neighbors will think of us, uh, and we take that cowardly option of, well, what uh, what is the opinion of the most the most people? Um, but that's what our politicians do. That's what gets us into this problem to begin with. And so, for the next generation of Christians to escape the cycle of what you're calling, I think is that they're going to have to be confident and sure of their opinions, which demands that they can't simply receive 
what Andrea says or what Pastor Steve says. You have to simply be so saturated in the scripture that you have a confidence in what God is doing. Right? The only place you can have that confidence is if you have that daily renewal in the word. And without having your focus there, you're going to be stuck in this mire, in this uh, swamp of opinion. But God offers a way out because he speaks plainly to you in his epistles and in his law. And so there's a solution to the I think world, and that's go straight to God's word, know it, proclaim it, and don't be ashamed of it. And he will lead you uh, to wisdom. And then in the process, as you and someone else may have a contrary view of what the scripture says, a good example would be, should infants be baptized or should they not be baptized? Should you submerge or should you sprinkle? Well, I think the first thing to realize is if we're both agreeing that baptism is important, then we should each attempt to articulate our point of view in terms of scripture with the understanding that if somebody's argument and um, exegesis changes our mind, that we're willing to have our minds change. But too many people engage in discussion with cement shoes on that says, I don't care what you say, I'm not changing my opinion, in which case we're not really having a fruitful discussion. That's right. There is a certain humility. I mean, there, there should be a, a sense of a thought of humility in the church. Um, reformation after reformation proves that the church is capable of failing and has to be rebuilt. And so if the church and its giants can fail, uh, how much more susceptible to failure are each of us as individuals? We need to, to humble ourselves to the word of God and allow our minds to be reformed and reshaped. All right, so we've mentioned Rush Dooney's book, By What Standard, where he talks about if it's not going to be the Bible, it's going to be something else, in which case it's not going to be the foundation of the solid rock that we stand on. Any other resources that you would recommend? Well, if you want to get into more of the the philosophy of it, I mean, there's obviously more on the Cartesian reality of opinion, if you want to do that in the one of the many. But I also think that there is... Um, a lot of work to be done amongst us on the idea of emotionalism, right? Um, and so re- reading Revolt Against Maturity and understanding uh, God's call to have a real word and law-based religion rather than a, a feel-good or easily emotionally manipulated religion. And that'll keep people busy for quite some time. <laughs> and they're also, and those are all available at calcedon.edu. And there also, if you put in the search there, um, many audio lectures where Dr. Rushduni has explored some of these things as well. Well, I think we covered it, unless you think there's anything we've left out. I think, I think, uh, well, I shouldn't say I think. I believe we've done a, a thorough job. <laughs> All right, as much as we can do in a short amount of time. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Join us again next time when we pose a question and then go underneath and behind that question to flesh out exactly what the scriptural position should be. Talk to you next time, Steve. Thank you, Andrea. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.